0: You're listening to Schooled with Carla Hulse. Join Carla as she explores K-12
1: education disruption and has deep dive conversations with ed leaders, ed tech, ed foundations, ed professional service organizations, and ed educators who school her on ed innovations and their impact on educational policy across the country. Here's Carla.
0: Welcome to Schooled. I'm your host Carla Hulse, and joining me today is Courtney Williams, founder and CEO of Torch, which is based in New Orleans, Louisiana. And Courtney and I don't go far, far back, but in the time that we've known each other, Courtney, I am always amazed at your your energy, your enthusiasm about all things ed tech. So I'm excited to jump into this topic, and I've named today's episode. Beware of shelfware. Is technology the great equalizer or the digital divider? And I remember, so I'm going to go back a little bit. Say in the early 1990s, um, when the internet was just beginning to kind of gain its legs, and specifically in Chicago. Um, and I know you know this, Courtney. There were software companies that were creating kind of educational software games, mm-hmm. like do you remember Math Monsters? And Oregon Trail, those were big in my household. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, um, kind of in my work world, I was working um, at an organization out of the University of Illinois Chicago. First kind of coaching assignment was at a high school on the south side of Chicago. And this principal was completely innovating. Again, this is the early to mid 90s. He had computer labs, he had Plato. Do you remember Plato reading labs, Mm -hmm. writing labs? So he had all this going on when I didn't even have a computer at my house, but this guy had like full computer labs. And all he kept saying to me was, Carl, I need to um, move beyond kind of remediating my kids. I need to prepare them for the future. And I know what's happening on the North side of Chicago. I know what's happening in the suburbs. Those kids have computers already. Mm-hmm. They they have them at their homes, but they definitely are using them in school. And I was like, I guess. Like I didn't see the future that he saw and clearly I should have invested. I mean, I just did not see computers and the internet and the world taking off like you did. Mm -hmm. Whoa. Okay. So clearly I don't, I don't know what's going on, but when you think of the idea of a a principal, you know, 25, almost 30 years ago saying, I know this is going to be either a divider or an equalizer. Like I'm going to make sure that my kids have the same footing. When you think back to your days of just starting TORS, were you thinking about EdTech in that way, that this is going to be a disruptor and it's going to even the playing field?
1: So thank you for that uh, introduction, Carla. Uh, Much appreciated. And thank you for putting on this uh, podcast. Um, So as you mentioned, I'm the CEO of Torsh. Torsh is an education technology company that uh, produces a professional learning platform for educators, What we focus on is we focus on making it easy to do a lot of the things that a principal or an administrator typically does, but easier, faster, quicker. And we focus on helping teachers get feedback, coaching, um, community, all in an online space. So when we talk about EdTech, EdTech is such a huge, huge descriptor for so many different companies and businesses. The things that you were just reminiscing about tend to fall in what I call sort of like the consumer end of EdTech, where a parent can mm-hmm. purchase additional software and games and materials for their kids um, to give them additional um, work or to enhance their learning capabilities. And there's the other side of ed tech, which is totally on the back end that many consumers don't ever see, but that a school principal administrator would see. Sort of a lot of the data analytics companies, a lot of the efficiency plays, a lot of the um, the things that makes running a school uh, much more efficient. So it's it's really really broad, and you know. Even included in that are things that corporations are doing with providing their employer, employees um, additional opportunities to upskill themselves and get new opportunities within a company, things that the government is doing. Um, it's a really broad area. So to get back to your question around how do I see EdTech or how did I think about EdTech in terms of it being a disruptor, whether or not it had the ability to level a playing field, or um, you know, whether it's more of a, a divider. So I wish I could be a hero or a villain, but unfortunately I'm gonna take the middle <laughs> path and I'm gonna be neither. Oh, right? so safe, so <laughs> safe. It's not that I'm playing safe, it's just um, you know, I've been in this space for a little while, and I have to say that it's it's neither and it's both, right? Because at the end of the day, mm-hmm. EdTech. Uh, is, you know, education, technology, and technology is like anything else in a principal's toolkit, it's a tool, right? And just like any tool, if the person wielding the tool isn't skilled at wielding that tool, you could do a lot of damage. And if the person wielding the tool knows how to build beautiful buildings with a hammer, then you get beautiful buildings so there are circumstances in which edtech has been used to great effect and has provided lots of opportunities and um, capabilities for children who hitherto didn't have it and then there are circumstances in which edtech is in fact what you just said earlier right it's it's software on a shelf or it's a piece of machine on the shelf because the people buying it and the people using it didn't really know how to and they just bought a new shiny thing and they didn't know what to do with it. Mm-hmm. So it is both, but it has a huge amount of potential to do good, and sometimes it has the potential to do bad and it has done both. Um, so that's sort of like my, my quick and easy answer. And then, you know, as we go through, I'd sort of like to share with you how I see EdTech have an impact and having the ability to disrupt and what it's great for. And um and then we can sort of jump into that a little bit later as we as we continue.
0: Yeah, so let's go back to my first question. So I, I love that analogy of Um, having a great tool in one's hand and yielding it like a sword. I I like that. So when you were first starting TORS, like how did you even think this is something I want to do? And what is that thing that you wanted to do? Uh What was missing? What was missing in the K-12 space, which really, again, in the 90s, it was literally math munchers and Play-Doh. I mean, it was such a, a, there was nothing there. So what was, clearly a lot was missing, but what did you think you could contribute to K twelve in particular. Crazy. I know you do things, and I know you do things in higher ed. But I want to kind of yeah, focus and on K twelve. So.
1: No, that, that's great. So yeah. Torsh is. Um, we are nine years old. So we started the company in 2012, and the impetus for starting the company was um, driven. Actually, it's a very personal story. Um, you know, I'd been in the internet space for quite some time. I I started at AOL. Way back in the '90s, I got my first job in tech at AOL in 1990. Oh, hold on,
0: stop, stop, stop. For those those Gen <laughs> Xers or whatever they're called, that's that AOL stands for America Online.
1: <laughs> oh my goodness, this is hilarious. Go Google it. Exactly. Be- before there was Google and before there was TikTok and before there's anything that you know, there was this company called AOL that allowed you to dial up to the internet like with the speed of a telephone and get on the internet there's like ringtones and everything so anyway i just dated myself but i started in the internet in 1997 and i you know it was a wonderful career and i i did a lot of things most of the things i've been able to do was facilitated by that first um job that i had at aol but fast forward many years and um, i'd still been in the internet space largely on the advertising side which is what AOL was. AOL was an opportunity to get people online and we sold advertising to them to make money. As I got older, I realized that I wanted to do something that had more social value. So I got to a point in my career where I was like, I love being in the internet space. It has changed the world, it will continue to change the world. But I want to switch a little bit to an area that I I felt had social value beyond just making money. And a good friend of mine from law school, also a fully recovered lawyer, different story, different podcast. Um, I had a good friend that I went to law school with who passed away when we were both really young. So I was 39 at the time, he had passed away at 39. And I went to his memorial service. And I remember when we were in law school, we used to talk about all the things we were gonna do to change the world. We're gonna do this, we're gonna do that. Like literally we're gonna change the world. And when I was sitting at his memorial service, he had done so much of the things he had talked about and I hadn't done any of them. Oh. So oh my God. I know it was really a very, it was a very sort of impactful moment. So this is, so in his short time in the world, he had gone to South Africa and helped to rewrite the constitution. He had started a charter school in South Africa. He had started a charter school in Brazil, I think in Rio. He was a full a lawyer at a big time law firm he just, he had lived the life that he talked about. And he was still a very fun guy and sort of living his life. And I was sitting there, I was like, what have you done? You've just been chasing the dollar, right? Like, you've literally just been chasing the dollar one job after the another." And so it was kind of like, I was like, tomorrow's not guaranteed to anyone. And I just started thinking about like, what do I want to do? Like, how can I have an impact on the world? So fast forward a little bit. So this was 2009 and then 2010, I had the opportunity to leave the internet company I was with, and I was like, I want to do something that has social value. I'm Jamaican. I was born in the Caribbean. I'm an immigrant. I came to New York. I went to a really good uh, um, undergrad. I went to a great law school, and I saw education as being the great equalizer in my life. Had I not had the great educational opportunities, and started way back, I mean, I had, you know, growing up in Jamaica, Jamaica is a great educational system, though it is a small third world country. So I thought about where am I, where I am could not have been facilitated by anything other than having received a great education. So I started thinking, I want to do something that makes it possible for somebody that looks like me to have a lot of these general uh, opportunities. So started thinking about it. And then I played football in college. I went to Oberlin undergrad, where if you know anything about Oberlin, no one goes to Oberlin who thinks they can play football <laughs> at all, right? You don't go to- They Ober- go to where I went to undergrad. Exactly, right? You go to big name school, right? You don't go to Oberlin to play football. So you, if you're playing football at Oberlin, you're doing it just for fun. Yet, our, our school spent an inordinate amount of money on professional coaches, a bunch of coaching equipment, video cameras, video editors, all of these people were employed to help middling athletes increase their performance by a middling one or 2%. And so that stuck with me. There's this infrastructure around allowing an athlete to see what their practice looks like and how they can improve. And there was just a shift in my mind. I was like, you know, why does it take a year for a student to fail out and have to repeat a grade. Why can't that student see what's happening? Why can't the teacher see what's happening with the student after month one, month two, month three, month four? How can we make it faster for a teacher to see what's happening with a given student and to help that student remediate and to improve? And that that was a connection. I remember all of the videos that we took off my practice, all the time I spent talking to my coach, all of the, they make, there was actual film. They would sit in the film room and mm. cut these things together on a videotape and give it to us to play yeah. of our practice. And the idea came to me, what if I could videotape what's going on in a classroom? And what if I could use software and technology to process that video and present to the teacher the next day, here's what Johnny learned and here's what Johnny didn't learn. Could we then, make it faster for teachers to understand what's going on with the student. And that was my big idea. My big idea Got was it. I wanted to wire all the classrooms at video, capture everything on, the, on what's going on in the classroom, use software to process everything overnight, and by the next day, present to a teacher, five students are doing well, three students are not doing so well here, the other students are here. That was the impetus for starting Torch, today's one room schoolhouse. I was yeah
0: yeah, and so at, and so, at that time, did you did you understand the complexities of the system by which every teacher is living under oh, no, not at in all. the classroom? Not at all, okay. So you just were like, if I do a plus B, it will equal C. Like you did not. okay, <laughs> I
1: was one of those people, right? So I have an immense amount of te- respect for teachers now being in the industry for nine years before I, started this. I had very, I once had very little respect for teachers. I was one of those people from tech who goes, teachers don't know what they're doing. School administrators don't know what you're doing. You just need to write some software and it's going to fix the world. Mm-hmm. Right? Like we could do this so much better than what you guys are doing. You guys don't know what you're doing. I was one of those people. like, why don't teachers blah, 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 right? Because I had no idea how things actually work. You know, I was like, well, I went to school, <laughs> so therefore I'm an expert <laughs> on education.
0: Of course, just, of course, because like it's, a, it's, a, it's, we've talked about this, right? Yeah. So you've, you've talked about the fact that you're like, you always ask me, well, Carla, do you think it's because there's so many females in the profession, yeah. right? The feminization yeah. of this profession? Yes, but it's just not a profession. Yes. Right? We're not on par with other professionals. So yeah, yeah everybody knows what they should be doing and, you know, anybody can be an expert in it or not. I mean, you could teach for right. America and circumvent and be something one day and something totally other day and then jump into the teaching profession. So I get that. Um, when did you get, when did you run up against the brick wall? Oh, <laughs> yes,
1: So that, that didn't happen for a while. So, you know, I had the idea, I started the business. I had a, uh, a bunch of advisors who were like, we know you don't know anything about the space, you know about technology, so we're going to help you understand it. I started running into the wall probably about two to three years in when I would sit with, you know, so our first customers are in the charter space and the charter space is a little different. There tends to be a little bit more openness to innovation. They have less constraints, as you well know, than a, a traditional district. So our early customers were in the charter space and then we started getting to the districts and we started running into the way things were done and the rules and the requirements and the structures and the resistance. So one of the first things that would struck me was that like, you know, people are like, why do I need this? I've been doing this the same way that I've been doing before. Um, or, you know, teachers are gonna be resistant to this. Nobody wants to be in video. Or, um, you know, yeah, this is great. We've got it figured out. It eventually became clear that there are some structures in education that are designed, not so much around students, but around adults. So that's one set of constructs. Another set of construct, and this is a real one, is that like, you can't come in and be like, let's iterate and you know fail and make mistakes and fix this, <laughs> yes. right? That's how yes. technology, that's how entrepreneurs in technology think. Let's move fast, let's break things, let's learn. And then we'll keep reiterating and getting better. These are real-life human beings we're talking about. And in a lot of cases, the, the, um, the customers that we support, we're dealing with children from disadvantaged backgrounds, children that are already dealing with a host of challenges, and they're not really our experiments. They're not there for me to learn how to make a product. And if they learn, that's, you know... That's a casualty of that experience, right? Mm-hmm. That's not the way the world should work. And so we actually run into some resistance that were good, That was good, right? These are humans. They're children. You got to get your stuff together before you could come in here. So things move slower, right? There are rules. There are requirements. There are processes that are important to deal with children. So we started running to that fairly quickly. And then the other thing, too, is that, like, the vision I just told you about the company that I was going to build is not the actual company I built, Right. What I was building was what I thought I was going to build was technology to improve student outcomes by delivering to teachers information about what students should learn. The company that I built is a professional development organization that's focused on improving the quality of teaching so that those humans could deliver human interactions to students and help them get better. Yeah, so when did that switch
0: happen for you?
1: It happened in a couple of initial meetings where when we're going in and we're talking to people like, yeah, we've got this great idea, blah, 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 we're going to do this. And they're like, yeah, that's great. That's not what we need. Like, you could build that, but I'm not going to buy that. Here's what we need. We actually have teachers that are collaborating. They are looking at each other's practices. But the time it takes for me to take teacher A out of the classroom and send her to teacher B's classroom That's after now hire a sub to put in that classroom and that increases my cost and it's inefficient. And also teacher A goes to teacher B's classroom, looks, they take some notes, they go back, they don't really remember it. What we really want is a quick and easy way to do two things. First, to allow a teacher to record themselves so they can reflect on their practice. And second, we want a quick and easy way to for that teacher to share that video with another teacher, so that the teacher doesn't have to go to that teacher's classroom. They can see it. So they were really focused around professional development, reflection, and collaboration. And they're like, if you build that, that we will buy. That happened to be easier than what I wanted to do. And it also happened to be the first step in doing what I wanted to do. I first had to get video cameras into classrooms. And the easiest way to do that is to let a teacher record what's going on versus wiring the classrooms. I have to get permission to go and wire thousands of classrooms versus to say to a school principal, allow your teachers to use this little device in their hand, this iPhone, to record what's going on. That's a lot easier than wiring classrooms for, for videos. So that's why I went in that direction.
0: Yeah, I, I, again, you and I have had years of conversations about this thing and in particular, teacher and leader, leader quality. So I'm kind of listening to your story. Did you care what they were recording, what they were talking about? Were you just kind of the conduit, the tool, and you don't care what the byproduct is, if improvement actually happens? Like, help me wrestle with that. Because again, I'm I'm a practitioner, so mm-hmm. I, I all I care about is the improvement yes. and the quality. What tool I use doesn't matter. So it's, it's just hard for me to wrap my head around something where it's, it's just about the tool. But maybe I'm misconstruing.
1: So, so a good product, and in this case, the product would be the tool, is built and designed to enable to the user to do exactly what the user wants to do, when they want to do, and how they want to do it. So your question is a great one. Did I care about the improvement or the end result? Or did I care mm-hmm. about just providing them with a tool? Now, mm-hmm. I'm sure their knives are a great example. How many different knives have you ever seen? I mean, they come in all shapes and sizes,
0: countless, countless yeah, right? Yeah. Countless. And yeah. so
1: one might ask, you know, if a, if, a, if, a, if a Martian came down to Earth today and was like, "Why the hell do you guys have like 15 different types of knives?" They might be confused. But I might say, well, (laughs) one knife is a fillet knife. It's designed to, you know, for fish to quickly fillet the fish. Another one is like a bowie knife. Just just for butter. Exactly. There's a butter knife. So that's the answer to your question. I have to care about the end result because the product that I build is designed to get you to that end result. You could, I mean, Zoom is a video recording tool. Right. It doesn't get the same results as our product, which is designed for capturing the interaction and providing immediate feedback. So we had to build the tool to accomplish the objective of the end user. So eventually we had to really care. So we started, you know, the way we improve our product is we go into classrooms and we say to teachers, tell us what about this doesn't get you what you need. Tell us what about this doesn't work. How much time is it taking? Are you able to get the feedback quickly? Can we? Can you see what you want within X amount of time? And so our product is improved upon by actual users using it to do what they wanna do. And there are lots of video recording systems out there, but not all of them are designed for reflection, feedback, quick access to data about my practice. So we do care deeply about the results and we continue to tweak the tool um, you know, a big part of what we're doing right now is around data, getting teachers information faster um, about what's actually happening. And it's really about, are you getting the information to have the impact that you want with the students or in your classroom?
0: Yeah, that was before you kind of um, added that second piece. That was going to be my next question Was really around who do you have at torch mm-hmm. who has that kind of deep educational knowledge mm-hmm. so that you are bringing forth a tool that is transforming practices otherwise it does become shelfware like we use it at first cuz it's shiny and new mm-hmm. and it's either too cumbersome or too complicated or it's not really helping me because i don't know what i'm doing right i, I i'm still a little fuzzy on I can record myself all the time, Courtney, in yeah. my classroom, or as a principal,, yeah. and so what okay right and and if the teacher I'm going to is equally as confusing and doesn't know so what yeah. so how do you guys ensure that you are you can have a phenomenal product, yeah. But again, going back to this, do you really care or is it is it for you to care Mm -hmm. that teachers are improving and that leaders are improving by using your tool? Or maybe that's not even something that you say, Mm -hmm. like that's not a part of your selling point. Like if you use TORS and in particular talent, Mm -hmm. and you can talk about talent talent, later on, but Mm -hmm. one of your platforms is talent. Mm -hmm. If you use talent, your teacher, your teachers will grow by X whatever like Mm -hmm. is that even a pitch for you guys i mean how do you even i'm just kind of wrapping my head around so there's still a tool for me
1: so there 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 are a couple of pieces um so we tend not to say if you use talent your teachers will improve by x largely because we have been humbled to recognize that the tool itself is not the end game right so A good example would be a typical district buying our product and like, yeah, you've got this video observation platform that allows us to do all these different things, but so what? And so my answer would be, well, the first step is, what do you want to do, right? I can't tell you what you want to do. So there might be four districts that buy a product that have very different objectives about what they want to accomplish with a tool like ours. You could have one that's focused on teacher retention You could have one that's focused on new teacher induction. You could have one that's focused on teacher evaluation. You could have one that's focused on building community. Now, if those are four different objectives, you first need to know what you want to do and why. What is that going to do for your teachers and your ultimate student outcome? And because you need to understand that, I can't do that for you, right? You need an expert on your side who's gonna say, if what you want to do is teacher retention, here are the pillars of that strategy. Here are the things you must do. And it's not just about a, a piece of software. There are other components. There's teacher salary. There's teacher education. There's a culture. There's a whole bunch of stuff. So I can't come in and tell you, buy my software, and you will solve your teacher retention problem. Right, I will come in and I'll say, if part of that problem around teacher retention is teachers not being able to get access to feedback when they need it, which research has shown is a really important part of keeping your teacher, they need to feel supported, they need to be able to access um, feedback when they need it, and they need to be able to feel like they're part of a community. If those are things you want to solve, my tool can help you to do that. And here's how we go about doing those three things, right? Feedback, um, support, coaching, community, I can solve that for you. But I'm going to say first to you, you must first have an idea of what you want to do. And that's where we became humbled. Software can't do that. That needs a human to understand the objectives. Mm -hmm. And then they get the tool, they get their hammer, and they start wielding it. And I'm the hammer. Right? Mm -hmm. And so I've designed that hammer to help you solve that problem. So you need to go find the right hammer. Um, And then when you've got the right hammer, we're going to sing. We're going to make beautiful music together. So that that sort of yeah. help you understand so, that piece,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, because getting back again, there are now millions of tech tools out there yeah. on the front end, like you were saying, kind of the software, and on the back end, we yeah. haven't even talked about kind of data and data, data mining.
1: Stuff,
0: yeah, 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 yeah. So, do you see yourselves? It sounds like um, in those kind of initial conversations that you have with school leaders or charter leaders, that you're doing some of that. um, removal of the schizophrenia that exists in districts. Like you've run into that, right? That there are people just grasping for a plethora of solutions because there are very complex things people are grappling with in schools. So you're hopefully, it sounds like, helping to kind of slow down that schizophrenia to say, what is it that you really need? Slow down. You don't need 15 different things. It could just be torch talent and... A data mining tool, right? So you're helping, do you think, in kind of slowing the distraction so that you really are.
1: We are. And this was an evolution on our part. When we first started, if you call me up, I'm like, I'm going to make sure you leave this conversation with Torch Talent in your hand, right? Because as a small company, we're just trying to stay alive and trying to make sure we're selling our products. Today, I may actually end the conversation by saying to you, I don't think you're the right, we're the right tool for you. Right. We've evolved to the point where it's no longer important enough for us to just get a, get purchased. It's as important mm-hmm. for you to continue using the tool. And I don't think you're going to use a tool three, four years down the road if there isn't the right mm-hmm. fit up front. Right. So that comes in a number of different ways. First, I need to understand what your objectives are then I need to understand if you know enough about what you want to do that you could use our tool. And if I don't, then I need to actually have a relationship with somebody like you, Carla, who can come in as an expert and a consultant and go, guys, these are things you want to do. And by the way, this software service can actually allow you to do these things. It won't do those four things, but it'll do these three things. So we've aligned ourselves with experts who can come in and actually provide the support around what you should do, when you should do it, how fast you should do it, and where the mechanism by which you do it and you do it more efficiently. Um, so we've gotten better at, at, at doing that. And so at the end of a conversation, I might say to someone, we're not the right product for you or you're not yet ready for us. I suggest you go talk to my partner X. So for us, where our business has gone is we're now aligning ourselves with these professionals That I could sometimes bring into the conversation so if I have an initial conversation I'm like these guys are not really ready they don't really know what they want in the past I couldn't do anything about it all I could say was maybe you need to call me back later but that's not a good business strategy right now I'm like hey can I set up a call with my colleague Carla House who has a certain expertise in XYZ let's have that conversation then we could really determine You do an analysis of what your issues are. Here's a plan for fixing them. And here's where we fit. So we've aligned ourselves with those folks. And that's where we think our business is going, where we do care about the results. It's not just about selling a piece of software. It's about selling something that actually has results and will have an impact. And we need partners to do that. So that helps to manage the schizophrenia because a lot of times principals are like, their hair is on fire, right? Mm -hmm. And so they heard about this new thing That's going to save the world and make their lives easier. And they're like, we're going to spend it. And um, it's easy to take those dollars, but it looks worse for me to lose a customer after a year because we didn't really properly understand their needs than it is for me to say, you know what? We're not the right ones for you right now. It's easier for both people uh, if if, if we do something like that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. it's, It's interesting. So you were talking about kind of at the very beginning that, ed tech is so vast yes. and it is right. Mm-hmm. And, and I think, you know, in, in my role working just um, with state district and site leaders, I'm very specific on what I need. And, you know, <laughs> you and I've had a lot of conversations on the very specific kinds of um, uh, tech tools that I need. Yeah. And um, 99% of it is around data, yeah, right. And very specific data. Okay. Um, so, and I know, I mean, a good 10 years ago the things i was asking for around connecting student outcome data mm-hmm. right to the adult practices data yeah. i mean people were looking at me like i was speaking you know since you mentioned martians and in, in martian yeah. and um I don't know. Is that changing at all? Present day are people understanding that it's not just about having these really pretty dashboards. And there are millions of companies out there that produce dashboards for people, right? And then there are some, you don't have a lot of folks in your space in the kind of teacher professional learning space. And then there's a black hole that connects the two where I can look at professional practice Mm -hmm. and have some idea on how it's impact in the outcome yeah and then I can determine my investment, that ROI that I've been just crying for for years. So are we getting closer? Am I going well, to finally get to, that at least Carla hosts me?
1: I'm, I'm <laughs> trying to build that for you, Carla. I'm, I'm a little delayed, <laughs> but I, I 100% agree with you because I see it. I am in the teacher, profe- our educator professional development space. We don't really play in the student outcome space, meaning we're not capturing the data or, you know, the grade books or doing anything on that side. But for an organization to really make progress, they need to see which instructional um, uh, modification strategies or which professional development strategies are actually having an impact on students, and to be able to see their RS. I agree with you a hundred percent. That's a black hole. So one of the things I wanted to share earlier around you know what I what I think ed tech is or what technology is, I, I would say that. Technology or technology solutions fall into like three big buckets in my mind. It's what I call efficiency plays, which is to allow you to do something you've previously done faster, cheaper, easier, better. Right. So it just takes mm-hmm. what you used to do. It used to take you a whole year. Now you can do it in a month. The technology, there's a lot of technology in that space, it just makes a much more efficient play. So it's either faster, and if it's faster, it mm-hmm. means I could do more of it. It's cheaper. If it's right. cheaper, it means I'm saving some money or I could do more of it because I have more money to spend and more. Of it. Right, because right? you have money, yeah. right. Um, or it's better, which is same cost, but it's such much better results that like, it's clear. That's bucket A. Bucket B is what I call, um, it allows you to do things that were not previously doable. It's just brand new things that are, that are now possible. Like one of my favorite favorite examples there would be like augmented reality education. So, you know, there's a possibility now that a student walking down the street could have their their phone up and there's an app on it that they could hit. And as they look at certain buildings, it gives them historical information about what previously happened in that building or what happened at the spot. So a great example could be, I live in New Orleans, Mm -hmm. right? New Orleans was a critical part of the slave trade. There are lots of street corners where there were like, you know, slave auctions So a student walking down the street with an app could go at this corner was one of the most famous slave auctions. That's not something that was previously possible for you to have that kind of information at your hands quickly in the educational context. So that's one of my favorite examples. There are lots of other examples of things that weren't previously possible. And then the third, you know, another example would be, you know, Google Books, right?
0: So I'm going to stop you there because that has me thinking. So that's great. I'm thinking of New Orleans and I'm thinking actually of like, Pre and post Katrina, New Orleans. So I lived in New Orleans pre. I lived in New Orleans pre Katrina. You lived in New Orleans post Katrina, yeah. right? Right. So I'm thinking of again getting back to this idea of of technology being either a equalizer or a divider. So I see a kid with technology and they're doing whatever you just mentioned because that sounds like futuristic and I have no idea what you're talking about, but that <laughs> sounds cool. But how does every kid get that? Okay. And. Right. I mean, think about the population of New Orleans. Who who are the kids in, in schools in New Orleans? Or think about the kids where I live. I'm in the middle of nowhere where broadband is horrible. Sure. Right. When we always have calls and I'm always choppy and I'm frozen because there's no company wants to put in the infrastructure. Yeah. So are, are companies cognizant? Are you guys cognizant of what you're building, that it can be used by everybody and Every possible location? Or is it really just I'm thinking, you know, we're in New York, we're in the we're in the Bay Area, we're in Chicago, we're in, you know, and that's who our clients are, and everyone else be damned?
1: No, so so I'm gonna give you a three-part answer to that. Um, I'll start with the last <laughs> part of your question. It, it's not so simple. Again, we don't have heroes and villains. I'm sure there are some villains. Start it, but Make it easy. <laughs> I can't give you a heroes <laughs> and villains we have some limitations right my product requires the internet to work and it requires broadband to work well it can work in um environments which is dial up but it just doesn't work as well so that's my limitation it's not that i don't care i would love it to be more freely available i'd love for every school district including those in alaska and way deep you know, Iowa and Idaho to be able to have it. But the reality is that in those environments, they can do it, it's gonna be slower, there might be more frustration because the nature of my innovation requires that I have these faster networks to do the things at the cost point that I'm offering it, right? So that's part of our limitation and we'd love to be able to do it more. The second piece of your question is sort of like access. So the third thing that I think technology does is to allow you to do something that was so hard to do before that was practically impossible, though it is possible. And a great example of that is access. So my perfect example is rich people have always had personal tutors, right? Like, you know, you get your Mm -hmm. kids ready for high school or the SAT or whatever, and they could afford to get a super high-priced personal tutor to come to their house and do all that work possible, but for the vast majority of Americans, just not likely to happen. Technology changes that, right? You can now offer a tutoring service to a district that's available to the whole district at a much lower cost because your tutor lives in the Philippines or your tutor lives in the U.S., but in a much, much cheaper area. So they're not charging you $200 an hour. They charge you $50 an hour. You've got the scale enough. Maybe you could drop down to $25 an hour that then pushes out to the pre-Katrina, post-Katrina. One of the things that I thought was, it's not beautiful about the pandemic. One of the the results out out of the pandemic that I think is great is the realization that every student needs to have access and the access can't be theoretical, it must be actual Mm -hmm. as in they need to have some sort of computing device at home to be able to access the internet and be able to be able to go to school, and that's been driven by the pandemic. And I think technology allows that. Correct. You could buy a Chromebook for three hundred dollars. Actually, you could buy a couple of Chromebooks for like two hundred and fifty dollars. So fast forward or rewind to thirty years ago, since we like talking about the nineties and you know a long time ago. <laughs> right. A computer with the computing power of a Chromebook. I don't think it was even accessible to, to regular people, to be perfectly honest. But if it was regular to accessible to regular people, you're talking about millions of dollars in cost. That is now available for $250 to a young kid in Louisiana facilitated by funding from the federal government to purchase technology tools so that if there's another pandemic, there's another Katrina, there is some other major event You could argue that school continues.
0: Yeah, but why does it take pandemics, right, these catastrophic events for us to finally go, oh, yes, everybody should have technology? Case in point, one of my last studies that I did when I was working for the American Institutes for Research was studying this crazy idea. That's what people were saying. Oh, he's so crazy. The superintendent of LA Unified at the time, John Daisy, was like, every kid's going to get an iPad. And people were like, you are stupid. Why? This is nuts. And now it's like everyone needs to have an iPad. But why does it take, you know, why does it take these monumental things to just to give everybody access? These are things that. My kids had an iPad back sure. when he was saying that. Sure. You're, I'm sure. Well, you didn't have kids yet. You, you have sweet little babies now. But, but if you had kids yeah. 10 years ago, yeah. they would have had iPads, right? So sure. it's only the, you know, the select few who can have these precious things like access to high quality education. But when you talk about the masses, it's like, yeah, no, we're not ready for that. So, so. you're not going to love
1: my answer, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. <laughs> so they say that air safety is written in blood that you need a plane to crash for it to get safer, right? And that's largely true, right? Like we, today, airplanes are the safest mode of transportation, but, a you know, 50 years ago, 60 years ago, you had a lot more crashes to make it safer. So that's version one. In the early 1900s, do you know what the number one killer of children in the United States was? You're never going to guess this, but take a wild guess. In the early 1900s
0: uh being kicked by a cow. <laughs>
1: You're actually <laughs> fairly close.
0: I mean it was milk. I'm a midwestern girl, so I don't... milk. Oh yeah, okay. Milk. Yeah.
1: And you know yeah. why?
0: Salmonella or whatever? Because
1: they didn't have pasteurized milk. And the cost so these are children, all kinds of children. Obviously richer children would die less because you know they probably could go out and get the cow's milk and drive it back to their house. But the Their pasteurization hadn't been invented. And even when it was invented, the cost to pasteurize milk was higher than what the milk producers wanted to produce. So they didn't do it and babies died. So my response to that is that in a large country, in a country where there are multiple competing objectives, it isn't always obvious which initiatives to get funding. And sometimes you need a disaster to focus people on what they should care about. And so that's the that's the unfortunate answer. It takes disasters and tragic circumstances oh to create better living for human beings. And so the pandemic made it clear that kids couldn't go back to school unless they actually had devices. And so the federal government came up with some money. People came up with money that they, did, they didn't think they had. And now it's more possible.
0: Yeah. So you bring up the feds. Yes. I'm going to leave the disasters please um <laughs> I'm sorry but do you think the, do you think the feds then should have a role in pushing on these things always so that it doesn't take a disaster that they're always the ones saying we need because i mean obviously the biden administration has signed this massive infrastructure bill and i'm i'm like thank you jesus bring the bring broadband to where i live finally yeah. right a simple things but and then also, not just kind of infrastructure stuff, but also, um, do you think the feds have a role in vetting ed technology when it relates to K-12? Aha.
1: All right. Aha, so that it's like not that. just a
0: cesspool, right? It's not just a cesspool of everyone who can float, because then it does become the shiny new thing, and I'm pulling all the kinds of stuff. It becomes, these are the critical things, and I don't know what they would all be, but right, yeah. that that schools need to function in terms of technology? Should there be some kind of federal guidance, oversight? I don't know what it would be, but so, what do you think about that? I mean, What's I that? think there
1: is a role for government in lots of things. Unlike some people who think that we, you know, uh, we should live in a completely govern-less, you know, governmentless society. Um, I, I don't, I, you know, I don't buy that idea. There is, you're,
0: not a, you're not a libertarian? I am
1: not a libertarian. I am a capitalist and a proud one, but I'm not a libertarian. Um, there is a role for government. So the question you ask, I would say I'd split the baby, right? Like on the infrastructure side, there is absolutely a role for government. The internet is like telephone service. I mean, it is like, it's a critical service, right? This should Mm -hmm. be mandated by the government, just like they mandate transportation on the Amtrak and the U.S. Mm -hmm. Postal Service for Mm -hmm. mail, that every region in America should have High quality broadband. If you've, have you been to South Korea?
0: So it's like under. So it should be under the FCC. So it could be like little baby Bell. Remember when that when yeah, and it, Ma it Bell was broken up, but you still had all those regional bells.
1: Hmm. If you go to South, okay. if you okay. go to South Korea today, South Korea has such great broadband penetration that I think like ninety eight percent of the country is covered on the broadband. You're in the subway, deep underground, you got perfect broadband. It it it. It shocks me. It's appalling that the United States of America, which considers itself the most powerful country in the world. And by many measures, it is to not have the infrastructure. And it is in fact, infrastructure. It's like roads and bridges and ports. You need to be able to facilitate the ability of, of organizations to do business and for your citizens to be able to tap into those services. So we have to do better. And I think there's absolutely a role for government on the flip side. I don't know that there, that government should be involved in vetting, um, private companies in this, in this sense. I think that it would slow things down. I think that you would end up with getting certain companies that are not nearly as innovative and fast. And I think that there is a role for schools and there might be organizations, right? Like in, in my space in K 12, we deal a lot with what we call these, um, like like the BOCES or the regions in the states where Mm -hmm. these are these Mm -hmm. education Mm -hmm. cooperatives, I think there are enough quasi-governmental agencies that can do a much better job of vetting services on behalf of their constituents. They're not governmental agencies. They're still consumers, but they've aggregated their purchasing power to the point where it behooves me to, to to make sure that my products satisfy their re- requirements because now I get access to you know 50 districts instead of one so there are enough organizations I think that can do that vetting process that you don't need to involve the federal government or any state government and I I, I think that's fine
0: hmm okay I, I yeah I'm I'm trying to always because I I'm always trying to think about um just the inequities mm-hmm. from city to city district to district state to state and when you rely on kind of regional within the state of Iowa mm-hmm. right then you still have inequities within Iowa and then you have when equity inequities just between well what's going on in Iowa compared to California okay it's just some always thinking yeah. bigger picture and who can manage that? So that no matter where a kid lives, because everyone, you know, you keep hearing these analogies like zip codes dictate outcomes for kids. Well, it's because zip codes are so inevitable. And the more we create these systems that are based on locality, yes, right, because you bring up South Korea, no matter where you go to school in South Korea, it's going to be a great school in South Korea. It's not a certain zip code. So I'm trying to get away, figure out always ways to get away from I don't want to be a contributor to the inequity. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's why I'm always trying to disrupt that mm-hmm. no matter who I'm talking to. I'm always asking them a question. So what you're telling me is you to mm-hmm. the system, are we continuing to hold up the supremacy that exists already? Or are we trying to dismantle it? So that's all. Yeah, I mean, mean, it's not, a it's not a real, that's not a real question. It's what do you see in the future? Say five, 10, Twenty years from now in ed tech, wow. what is happening in ed tech? Because by then your kids will be high school, mm-hmm. college. So, what are you envisioning not only for Tosh, yeah. but also just what do you want your children to experience in terms of their schooling? What do you, what are you thinking about building about? What's going to be out there? Yeah.
1: So, this gives me an opportunity to talk about the other side of ed tech that we didn't really talk about, which is not. The parts that are not so yeah. obvious to most people, sort of like the back end around data. I think that with the advances in in computing power and our ability to sort of like sequence an entire genome and to create a vaccine, right? We effectively yeah. created multiple vaccines in about a year. Now, the reality is that a lot of the, the ground ish
0: years that's before. correct So yeah, a lot of yeah. the groundwork
1: <laughs> that was used to develop this vaccine had been laid multiple years per hour. however no vaccine prior to now had ever been able to come from manufacturing into the hands of people in under four year period of time so yeah. we know that we have- yeah yeah
0: i mean just the manufacturing alone yeah, was it, amazing i mean if you just look at just the manufacturing i'm like how are you get a billion pfizer things it is I'm phenomenal
1: did like, and then you know I know people are not going to like this. Mr. Trump should get some credit. I mean, he did, in fact, allocate a bunch load. All right. So we're
0: going to end this. We're going to end
1: this podcast. I'm just saying he he did allocate a whole bunch of federal money to, um, you know, Project Warp Speed and it did what it did. Warp Speed. You know, he did. Right. Maybe it's not him. Maybe it's administration, but credit where credit is due. I'm not a fan. But I got to give credit where credit is due. So to come back to your original question, with, with so much computing power and so much technology, I think a huge area of growth in the education space is going to be around data and analysis, pattern recognitions, and sort of like predictive capabilities. In other words, the research has been pretty consistent around, like you know show me a child's mother and that child's mother's educational attainment. And I could tell you where that child is going to be reading in, you know, in third grade. Right. So we know that data. That data is reliant on a lot of research and it's not real time. Right. Like if if Johnny comes into your room today um, with just what Johnny can do, we don't always have that input. We got to go look at Johnny's parents and Johnny's neighborhood. I think we're going to get to the point where we'll have so much data and so much data that's tied together from all across the country that we could tell you very quickly what a given student's outcomes are going to be at multiple stages. And we could sort of like move things around to say, right, like if we do more of this, what happens to Johnny? If I did right. this. If mm-hmm. we did this, what mm-hmm. happens to yeah. Johnny? And this stuff will become much more um Uh, 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 obvious, like we could could see it in more real time versus having to wait for years. So I think the data crunching capacity and the ability to put patterns together is going to become much more powerful. Now, whether or not we're going to make policy decisions based on that is an entirely different story. Whether or not we know that you need to get rid of XYZ teacher because this teacher is not going to do what Johnny needs. Whether or not we can make those human decisions based on this powerful data is an entirely different story. But I think it'll be there and you can no longer argue with it Because I think what happens in a lot of the spaces that we play, particularly where brown children are, particularly where poorer children are, is that people will fight with the data until they they, they run out the game or they run out the clock. Right, <laughs> right, right, like, right. Well, right. I, don't mean, I don't believe this, yeah. we need more data, we need more data, do another study, do another study. It's gonna become much harder to do that because the data will be there. You can't argue with like, well, if we talk about two districts, you may have a point. 10 districts, 20. We're now at 3,000 districts, right? In the United States, about 15,000 districts in the United States. If we can get to the point where there are enough ed tech companies that are in all of these systems and you could aggregate data properly deduped, we're not picking any particular place, but you could see what a given child looks like in all these districts, you can't fight with the data, right? Because
0: yeah, but how do you ensure that that data isn't just reinforcing racial and socioeconomic biases that we already have? I and mean, that's a part of, that's also a part of the yeah. fight, right? You have groups of people sitting in a room going, oh, well, they're from so-and-so, or their parents don't really want yeah. do-do-do, you know, whatever it is. So that also happens. So how so do you make that? Flip so, side. you're absolutely correct.
1: Um, I, gave a, um, I gave a talk about a year and a half ago at Johns Hopkins University for their commencement session, the School of Education. I knew you'd want to talk about some of that stuff. And one of the things I talked about was bias in AI and computing and um, data analysis, right? And the fact that if everybody that's around the table that's building the systems, um creating the algorithms and doing the analysis are lily white you're gonna get lily white interpretation of things that somebody might not be able to see because the data is interpreted by someone the algorithms are built by
0: someone it's that and i think it's um it's race and it's also class courtney right so if if you're because you you just said johns hopkins So no one's just rolling up in John's Hopkins, right? So it's also if I'm surrounding myself by these uber academics and we all basically have the same experiences and the people who yeah. look like us, we played lacrosse together, right? We summer at, you know, we summer at Martha's yeah. Vineyard. That's our lives. And and when people don't have those experiences, we tend to unconsciously yeah. think they're less than. They're just not can't quite Wish them well. Poor guy, right? So how do you So you you... don't fight
1: for those people? And then you're building entire systems. No, absolutely. So the data could be off because of who's built it, the interpretation. And this is a bigger part, I think, in some cases, than even the data. Data is raw. You need to make sure it's collecting the information correctly and it spits out information, right? the one that it spits out i could interpret that one 15 different ways based on my experiences and you could as well based on your experience so we need to have people in the room that have varied experiences so you could get the right analysis on the data so you're 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 absolutely correct that um the nature of the people in the room can influence what happens to the data um and the only way to fix that is you know as i say to it you need to have more people in the room you need to have different types of people in the room you need to change the complexion of the room um, and that one person in the room is going to be like, "Nope, I don't agree with you. That's not my life. That's not my perspective. We have to run this through again and look at it from a different angle. Diversity, or you know, diversity in interactions or in environments, produces in many cases better results because you have multiple eyes looking at it from different angles. Excuse me. So that's one of the things that I see. Just massive computing power presenting data and analysis more quickly." that you can start, you can literally move levers around what happens to a given student based on your inputs. And you know, it's not that easy to do today.
0: Um. So you were mentioning yes. Um. kind of again, the backside and your new endeavors outside of ish torch What does that look like? Yes.
1: Uh, so thank you for giving me that opportunity. Some really exciting stuff. So as a result of five informed TORSH, you know, we're an ed tech company, we're for profit. So we, you know, We've been growing our sales team and it's hard to find good salespeople. That's just a thing, right? Like it's just sales is tough. Not everybody can do sales. It's hard to find. So as I was looking to hire salespeople in in tech, I found that I couldn't find that many and I certainly wasn't finding any people of color or not enough people of color. So I've started, based on that experience, I've started a company called uh, Skills Academy. It's the name of the school. The company is Upriver Solutions, the name of our school is Skills Academy, and we've launched a sales boot camp where we're recruiting, training, and placing diverse candidates from underrepresented backgrounds in business-oriented tech jobs. So think about an engineering boot camp, mm-hmm. but this is now for the other side. We're not focused on coding. We're not focused on product management. We're not focused on design. We're focused on business, sales, operations, um, data analytics, Customer support, customer service. Hmm. And we are trying to impact the diversity of the tech space, which is remarkably non diverse and historically has never really been diverse. And we're finding folks and we're training them. It's an eight week course and we're getting them into jobs.
0: Is it exclusively That's a new opportunity. in New Orleans or is this across the country?
1: we're starting in new orleans cuz we just started but the goal is to be a national company very very soon within the next year or so and so we're trying to do three things right so it's a, it's where it's the intersection of education work and technology so employers are looking for qualified people mm-hmm. employees are looking for companies and they're trying to get into companies as soon as possible without having a ton of debt One of the issues that we know that's going on right now is that most kids are coming out of school with an enormous amount of debt. And particularly when you look at diverse candidates, they have a lot of debt, but they're going to work at pretty crappy jobs and are not paying them enough to pay off their debt. So higher education is going to be disrupted. So we're trying to fit ourselves in that space between you don't need to necessarily go to college. As long as you've got a high school diploma, you could come to a program or maybe you've got two years of college Mm -hmm. but you didn't finish. You could come to a program. Mm -hmm. I'm going to train you up in eight weeks and get your job. Okay, that's where we're going to play, and so it's it's a fascinating space, it's very different from K twelve. Yeah, but- yeah.
0: So ultimately, do you envision kids getting something like an AA? Right. So, like, if you if you didn't finish two years of school, you'll get a TA, a technical associate, or something. Not even. <laughs> no? We're
1: gonna give you. Not- eight weeks we're gonna give you a certificate which says that you've been trained in X. Ex- it's an apprenticeship you know what it is yeah, yeah, yeah it's what it's a new version of an apprenticeship okay you come get trained mm-hmm. we get you the basic knowledge we put you in an entry-level position at the company we continue to support you got it and then you begin to grow got it you may go back like those professional athletes who never got their bachelor's yeah you could go back and get your degree if you want to yeah, yeah. but the goal here is to say that there's an alternative to fifty thousand dollars in debt. Coming out of high school, and you could get an entry level job paying forty, fifty thousand dollars a year right off the bat, and you could build a career in tech because tech is growing. Yeah, there's demand, and um, you know there are opportunities. So this is a, actually a pretty big risk for universities, particularly community colleges and those universities low on the rung. Mm-hmm. They're going to be disintermediated in the next five to ten years. Yeah, I was maybe twenty. I, either but it's I was, coming. Yeah, calls it a day.
0: So you see a bright so. future where ed tech is in some way, shape, or form, you personally, or just kind of globally as the entity, disrupting and dismantling inequities? Do you see that happening? Clearly this this pandemic has sparked, but do you yes. see it? Yeah.
1: I probably don't see it in those terms, in terms of dismantling inequities, but it's what it will do. I see it more as disrupting inefficient Marketplaces, environments, um, uh, systems. Our current higher education construct is highly inefficient and needs to be reformed. Mm. You have a system in which the people, the the product that's being outputted, a student with a degree, is in no way, shape, or form matching up to the product that is being demanded by the buyer. Correct. The buyer is the employer they want somebody ready to do an entry-level job fully trained out of college right off the bat that is the opportunity those two things don't match correct and so i think that tech and ed tech in particular has a huge opportunity to reform that space and make those two things match much better and investors are very interested in the space and there's a lot of heat and it's a growing space. They they call it job tech, J O B T E C H. Job tech.
0: Interesting. And it's the
1: intersection of education, technology, and work.
0: So let me just throw. This, there are lots of companies. Let that me are throw in that this space. caveat yeah. at you, and this could be a, a a branch of your new company. So you you set up nicely the the chasm right between what young folks are learning in colleges of, of, I'm saying colleges of education and what they are supposed to be able to do the first day they walk in that door of that school, right? It just, it's light years, same with leadership. So how do you think, I'm thinking of Torch Talent, how can you filter that down into colleges of education so that pre-service is more prepared to do the work when they get in the school and leaders? Have you been thinking about that? So I'll tell
1: you, oh yeah, I have a very specific example. We, we, we've talked about this before. So one of the customers that we support is um, NYU, um, Steinhardt, um, uh, the, the Steinhardt School at NYU, under which is their school of education. And they launched a program in 2017 that they called a, um, a job-embedded program. Um, so it's sort of like a job embedded apprenticeship. Then call it apprenticeship. They called it. It's it's like a mat. It's a master's. You're a junior teacher. You go into the classroom in the actual classroom. Mm-hmm. There's a master teacher. That person teaches you for 18 months, and you get a Steinhardt degree when you graduate. And so the model was master teacher supported by academic coursework um, taught by NYU virtually and they use a Torch Talent platform to provide ongoing support to the students when they're in the classroom. So the student would be in the classroom interacting with students, capture video, upload it, the professors can provide feedback and sort of gave them um, assignments that they would do around uh, uh, improving their practice. So for us, that's a direct way in which NYU was trying to solve the problem off. You graduate from a master's program, you get to school and you have no idea where to start in this way. You've been in the school for 18 months. You know, all the students, you know, their policies, part of your education has been paid for by the school. And you are now committed to working for the school for a while, but you're already there. Right. And so So it's
0: a quasi medical model.
1: It's a quasi medical model. It's, it's, uh, you know, facilitated by education technology because now, They don't need to be in the lab at the University of Chicago. They could be at any district in America. And the education is being piped into them where they are. And they had some infrastructure around it. They had, like, you know, support staff there. Hmm. But we've been working with um, NYU. We signed the deal in 2016, and we worked with them since then after they launched our program. So that's a good example. What's happening is that districts are taking things into their own hands, right? There are lots of districts that are doing these alternative certification programs, that are training teachers to teach in their districts. This has also happened in charter schools. Success Academy which one of our clients has been trying to get the ability to train their own teachers for a long time. And um, we're seeing, you know, people that work with like, you know, the TFAs of the world. And, the, um, you know, the, what's the school, uh, Renew, not Renew, what's the school in New York City? Um, starts with an R. I don't remember the name of it, um, but it, it, there are all these alternative programs that are trying to solve just that problem, and it's a threat to the universities because somebody has stepped in to solve the problem they're not solving, which is preparing preparing student teachers to teach on day one. Correct.
0: Well, and and leaders um, as well. Yeah, and and, again, and as, leaders as well. As you know, I've been trying to. Not only get universities, but I think it's a it's a it's an ed, which is U.S. Department of Ed. It's an ed issue as well, right? When mm-hmm. you create this this ginormous um, education bill as a response to COVID, and and none of the solutions get at this. No one is raising the idea that maybe we have um, some quality issues around teachers and leaders at no fault of their own maybe we need to revisit colleges of education or wherever folks are being certified to teach and lead. And, and it's just such a huge missed opportunity, but I don't know, Courtney, um, this has been an awesome conversation.
1: Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Um, (laughs) Lots of things to talk about. We can talk about these issues we do know, for years so. <laughs> and
0: we do but I was way more positive today <laughs> and we you do. Say? I mean I was way more positive normally I'm no, no, no. <laughs> you
1: tried you tried <laughs> oh you did try oh, um, I kept you on, on target there <laughs> <laughs> thank you for listening Schooled with Carla Hulse is available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts including Spotify Apple Podcast Stitcher iHeartRadio, Radio and Amazon music